All right, if you guys could stand up with me as we read God's word and honor it. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless, many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of, the, of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Eretus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, you may be seated. Father, uh, as we look at the continuation of chapter 11 from last week, um, Paul dealing with the false teachers, the, the deceivers, those who are messengers of Satan, those who he calls the super apostles. I pray that you would shine a light in our own hearts and allow us to analyze and see perhaps what teaching we are listening to that may not be in accordance to your word. What teachers we may be gathering around us that are leading us astray. Um, Father, show us your word. Reveal yourself through your word. Magnify your son, Jesus Christ. Show us a glimpse of your glory in his face today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Corinthians 12.9 says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And he says this to Paul in response to this list of sufferings that I just listed off in, in chapter 11, but also particularly in chapter 12, he talks about this thorn that's in his flesh that the Lord refuses to remove. We picked a year verse this year uh, at the school. We just reopened the school that I work at. And... Um, Usually the student leaders gather around and they come up with suggestions about a year verse. 
and then we kick it up to the executive team, and then they pick your verse based off of some of the suggestions of the student leaders. And so it was exciting to kind of chart out a good, soul-energizing, meaty verse from the Bible that'll feed us for the rest of the year. Uh, We just went through the spring, right, where we all had to convert to at-home learning of some form or fashion. Um, Seniors were missing out on fellowship opportunities. Well, all the students were. They were missing out on their senior prom. Uh, Graduation was changed, right? And it had this new kind of social distance thing, which is not uh, normally how we do as human beings, right? And, you know, I I, I, I wanted this group in particular of last year to experience all these things, but they didn't get to. And so this year, as we are looking at this new year verse, I'm sitting here wondering, you know, what are my students going to, what are they going to kick up in light of coronavirus and all the things that are going on uh, currently? Uh, what is this new joyful piece of God's word to give us hope? And they picked Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now that sounds like the motivational year verse of all time, right? If anybody wants to follow me, die. Pick up a cross, bear it on your back, and die. Struggle under its weight. Have people spit at you as you walk by. Have rulers beat you and lash you and fit a crown of thorns around your brow. Have the soldiers nail your hands and feet to a cross and die. I wonder sometimes about my own self, but also just in general Christianity, if we don't really understand what Jesus did a man come and die, right? Summary of discipleship. Meanwhile, we're looking for somewhere safe, somewhere where our self can be accepted and embraced, where we can be true to who we are and what we feel, which are all good things. All the while, our Savior says, deny yourself. C.S. Lewis once penned this in Narnia, um, a place that I return yearly. Um, Lucy says this, then he isn't safe, talking about Aslan. Mr. Beaver answers, safe? Don't you hear what Miss Beaver is telling you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Sometimes I wonder if we settle for a safe savior instead of the good savior declared in the word of God. Sometimes I wonder if I settle for a safe Christianity instead of the good Christianity outlined in the Bible. A safe church instead of a good church. A church that bears the cross. The world doesn't understand Christianity, and when it does, it The best summary I've heard from someone who's not a Christian is it's a bunch of sheep who glorify weakness, that life demands strength, and these sheep glorify weakness, therefore they can't live life properly. They don't have the strength that life requires. The essence of discipleship is the road of ugly, slow death to yourself, but it's also the road that leads to resurrection, to life, and life everlasting. It's the road that's narrow that not many find. Try to broaden the road and you lose it. Try to make the road safe and it twists into the very evil you're trying to avoid. Stephen, the first martyr. Well, Christ. But Stephen died the martyr's death with rocks thrown at him. As the writer of this very letter that we're looking at today 
held the clothes of the men who were throwing the rocks and stood in approval, marveling at the weakness that is Christianity. And what do you think, you know, as we look at this, you know, Paul's talking about what does a good Christian soldier look like? And you would think, well, they dodge rocks, right? They don't just get hit by them. And they certainly don't die, right, in this, in this case. But that's exactly what Stephen does. He doesn't resist. And these Jews kill him for his testimony of Christ. And he died under the rocks. Sheep who glorify weakness, to which Christ responds, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Uh, Symphorosa, a widow of the 100 A.D. first century Christianity, was carried to the temple of Hercules. She was scourged and hung up for some time by the hair of her head, and then being taken down, down, a large stone was fastened to her neck, and she was thrown into the river, and she died for Christ. Um, I could give another example. A 16-year-old. 16-year-old. Um, Nicomachus, uh, this, this man of the faith, right? Uh, he was brought before a proconsul as a Christian was ordered to sacrifice to the, the pagan idols. And Nicomachus says, I cannot pay that respect to devils, which is only due to I, the Almighty. This speech so much enraged this proconsul that Nicomachus was put up on the rack. And after enduring torments, he recants. And then he dies. And looking on this scene, Denisa, a 16-year-old right, high school student, young woman of only 16 years of age who beheld this terrible judgment, says this, Oh, unhappy wretch, why would you buy a moment's ease at the expense of a miserable eternity? The proconsul hears this, calls her out, and she avows herself a Christian, and she's beheaded. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So maybe Matthew 16, 24 is not a bad year verse for high school students to pick. And so why am I saying all this? Why am I painting this just tragically weak and um, somber picture, right? Our text today is about the God who's magnified not in our strengths, but rather our weaknesses. And he triumphs through our weaknesses. It's about what it means to be a true soldier of Christ. In verses 1 through 15, the so-called super apostles... Uh, he, he compares himself and contrasts himself with the so-called super apostles, Paul does. And, he, and now he's going to boast of these things that are his badges of courage, right? It's like a, a soldier who gives his exploits of conquest. Paul's going to do that in this, in this text. Paul's going to question the church, Corinth, who so willingly surrenders themselves to Satan's invasion He's going to boast in the many weaknesses that he himself faced in battle. And finally, we're going to see his ultimate accomplishment, which is the equivalent of the Medal of Honor that he deserves for his weakness. We're left with this question. If this is how Christianity is, is if it's about sheep who are weak and a God who magnifies himself powerfully through weakness, if this is how Christianity is, then how is this ever going to work if God doesn't show up? Soldiers are supposed to win battles, not lose them. So let's look. Our first point is this. We're going to to focus on the Corinthians. Toleration of false teaching leads to our willing surrender of the church to Satan's invasion. Toleration of false teaching 
leads to our willing surrender of the church to Satan's invasion. And this is verses 16 through the first part of 21. So in 16 through 18, he's making another appeal. He's repeating himself. He's the fool again. In verse 1, back, if you go all the way back to 2 Corinthians 11, 1, 16 through 18, he says this. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast, end quote. And so he's already sunk to the level of comparing himself to these super apostles who would equate themselves to his ministry. And he calls them out last week, right? He calls them out as false teachers in line with Satan himself. And I think to me that's a, that's a scary thing to think about, all right? Because they're claiming to be apostles of Christ. They're working in churches of Christ, And Paul calls them false teachers, messengers of Satan. How scary is it to understand that there are groups of people who are likely convinced they are teaching what Paul taught and better, and they've convinced the church the same, all the while, in reality, they're messengers from Satan. And I'll repeat kind of what I said last week. We don't naturally, this is a D.A. Carson quote, we don't naturally drift towards holiness And to add on to the D.A. Carson quote, if we don't naturally drift towards holiness, we don't naturally drift towards teachers who would lead us in the way of holiness. So I can hear it now, right? This theme of foolishness, right? If you think him wise or a fool, embrace him and listen to his boasting. That's what Paul's saying. And you can kind of hear the super apostles now, like they're boasting. What are they boasting about? I've made hundreds of converts. I've planted dozens of churches. I'm the president of a big big to-do organization of Christianity. I've written hundreds of blogs. I've prayed a lot. I've written books. I've got degrees and credibility. Look how strong. Look how many badges I have for the sake of Christ. But in reality, Paul says it's for the sake of another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel. Verse 17, Paul jumps into the game that the super apostles seemingly have been playing, the boasting game. He says, I say, not as the Lord would, right? The Lord's not boasting like this. The fool is. I say, not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Paul puts himself in the position of saying, you know what? Call me a fool, so let me boast like a fool. He, the fool boasts of his righteousness, right? Think the Pharisee, right? Thank God I am not like this wretched tax collector over here, and he went away with a different righteousness from a different Christ, from a different God. Paul continues in verse 18, since many will boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. These super apostles have boasted according to what they have produced by means of their own strength, their own energy, their own identity, their own non-denied crucified selves. Paul plays the part of the fool, and now he's going to speak as the fool. And he writes this in verses 19 through 21. This is where he he zooms in on the Corinthian church. For you gladly bear with fools. And this is sarcasm. Being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame... I must say we were too weak for that. 
So he's paralleling back to talking about the fools, right? The super apostles. You put up with it readily enough. That's verse 4. Now look at verse 19. You gladly bear with fools. So it's not, last week it was you bear with it well enough. And this week it's, there's gladness. You don't even just bear with it. You're glad about it. It's good to you. You desire it. And then he says this. For it, you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, devours you, takes advantage of you, puts on airs, strikes you in the face. All bad things, right? Uh, commentator Mark Seifert points out this, that these five descriptions, and really um, the entire text is couched in military language. All right? uh, this is why I'm calling it uh, you know, Christian soldiering. So he points out that these five terms are couched in military language. So I want you to kind of show each one of the five and show you what the military language is so that you can kind of get the picture of what the Corinthians are doing when they gladly bear with fools. Some make slaves of you. The picture here is the city has surrendered itself after being besieged. And more times than not, particularly in ancient Rome, when a city is besieged and surrenders itself, the citizens are made slaves of the victors. Here the Corinthians' toleration of the false apostles has led them into surrendering in the battle and allowing themselves to become war slaves. And according to Paul, it's slaves of Satan, not slaves of something good. The second one, devours you. Devours you. Again, the idea of surrendering. The defeated city now offers its resources to its captors, and they devour it down to the very bottom. They use all the resources that the city once used for its own citizens. And then this is likely spiritual and physical because the super apostles, if you remember from last week, they're expensive. So they're literally taking the Corinthians' money to teach them false teaching. So it's, it's a literal and a kind of spiritual thing here. The third one, takes advantage of you. This image is the idea of a military victory. But it's not a victory by means of force. It's a victory by cunning and deception. Achilles, right, Achilles, in his anger and his strength, couldn't take the great city of Troy. Odysseus, in his wisdom and cunningness, invented the Trojan horse and hid some soldiers inside of it, got inside of the city, and then opened the gates for the rest of the the Greek soldiers to take down Troy. And that's the, the picture here. Satan's Trojan horse is Christian tolerance of false teachers and false teaching. Christians, the church's Trojan horse is Christians' toleration of false teaching and false teachers. We're not, Satan's not battering down the gates, right? In this sense, he's tricked you to open the door for him and invite him in. Join us for a meal, all the while knowing at some point in time he'll turn and feast on us. Once again, he's whispering to Eve like last week. Will we tolerate him or will we submit to the Lord Jesus and allow God to crush Satan under our feet? The fourth one, puts on airs. Puts on airs. The Greek word uh, is eparatai, which just means haughtiness. But it also, uh, in, in, in the context of battle, it can mean someone who rises up in rebellion. The idea here is that the Corinthians are ruling their city but that they are succumbing to a rise of rebellion inside of their city. Instead of putting down the rebellion, they wait around to lordship. 
in this case. Change of lordship, another Jesus takes over and takes residence. Five, strikes you in the face. And this is kind of the the bottom, right? The, the, The end result. The idea here is that they've been captured, they've been enslaved, Uh, Lordship and leadership has changed, and now they're paraded around in courts and slapped in the face, right, in demonstration of great dishonor and disrespect and shame. And we know, right, Jesus himself was struck in the face by many, but particularly of the high one of the high priest's men. But here they are spiritually being put to shame by submitting to false teaching and Satan, whereas Jesus was physically put to shame for submitting to God the Father. Outwardly, the Corinthians appeared to be flourishing, though inwardly they were returning to the shame and nakedness of Adam and Eve. Jesus was defeated in every possible and conceivable way, or as Colossians 2, 13-15 says this, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal Demands This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Jesus. Through the shameful death of Christ, God brought shame and disarmament to the rulers and authorities, Satan and his kingdom. He marched his enemy through the town square, stripping them of their swords and armor and clothes by the stripping of Christ on the cross. The bottom line here is the Corinthians' toleration of the super apostles now threatens a total overthrow of their church. Jesus uh, wrote letters, or at least spoke letters, to John in, in Revelation. And one of the letters to the seven local churches, Revelation two nineteen and on, uh, it's the church of Thyatira, uh, Jesus addresses this. He says this, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, all good things, and that your latter works exceeded the first. Your first, that's good. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual morality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. End quote. So Jesus is telling this church, search your mind and your hearts. Are you tolerating sin? Are you tolerating those who live in unrepentant sin? Are you tolerating those who are okay with those who live in sin? Are you tolerating false teaching? The great promise here is that Jesus will purify his church. He loves his church, and he's watching his church. He's not just watching it through people. He himself is shepherding his church. Now, Paul finishes this kind of scathing review of the Corinthians, right? Because the picture here so far is the Corinthians are basically just, they have all the means to overthrow and triumph darkness. They have all the means in Jesus Christ and him crucified. But instead, they're laying down their arms and they're 
beckoning in with gladness. Satan, right? But they don't know so. They're deceived. All right, so all the time. Now, Paul's going to kind of wrap it up with this. And this is sarcasm. It's real. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that, right? We were too weak for that. Too weak to tolerate false teaching that would overthrow his soul and the church he belongs to. Too weak for that. Too weak to allow others to enslave him, to devour him, to make errors at him, right? To trick him. Too weak for that. And it's my prayer, remedy, that we as well, each and every one of us would be far too weak for that as well. So let's look at this second section. Paul now moves from the Corinthians and he's going he's to bring the limelight on his great, um, his great Paul, crucified soldiering and weakness. Crucified soldiering and weakness. So we're going to look at what it really means to follow Jesus and what it, it demands, really, to follow Jesus and, and the soft sketching that comes along with following Jesus or can come along with it, for sure. So after sketching Corinthian wisdom of tolerating false teaching and where that leads ultimately, namely unconditional surrender to Satan, one degree after the next. After sketching the Corinthians' wisdom, Paul now turns to his theme, weakness. This weakness boasting continues all the way down to chapter 12. It really ends around verse 10 in chapter 12. Uh, but here we're just going to look at through 33. Paul highlighted how the Corinthian wisdom actually led to losing the war, and now he's going to highlight the way of soldiers of Christ. Crucified soldiering and weakness wins the war. So he starts off in the second part of 21 and 22 with a kind of tame comparison of his Jewish heritage with the super apostles. Uh, He writes this, um, But whatever anyone else dares boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. End quote. So he continues his full speech, and he's going to say, let's talk about our fleshly accomplishments. Accomplishments, not compliments. Are the Hebrews, are they Hebrews? Well, so is Paul. Are they Israelites? So is Paul. Are they children of Abraham? So is Paul. All of these things are genealogical feats. Feats of genetics. Oh, to boast about the families we've been born to, right? It is not like God chooses who we're born to. How proud we must, should feel for all the great work we have accomplished by means of our family tree and our genetics. Interesting enough, too, this kind of carries with it a parallel when he calls them the children of Abraham. Because there's two ways of understanding that. There's genealogical, like they literally are from the family tree of Abraham. But there's also the more, uh, the, the Pauline sense of the children of Abraham. This belongs to properly anyone who is in Christ is the offspring of Abraham. And Jesus has a similar conversation with Pharisees who thought, they, they literally said, Abraham is our father. And Jesus replies to him, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. So Paul now is going to turn away from genetics and family lines to service to Christ. And it's here where he's going to break. He's going to break from the strong, rich, eloquent, wise, powerful super apostles. So if you're reading verse 22 as a super apostle, you're just kind of shaking your head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are they servants of Christ? Yeah. 
uh, and you're reading all these lines and you're going along with them. And then he gets to this question, are they servants of Christ? And you're literally shaking your head. Yeah, we are, right? We're super apostles. We're servants of Christ. And you expect him to say, so am I, because that's what he's been doing so far. But instead he says, I am a better one. Or literally in the Greek, which is my favorite, I'm more. I'm more. Are they servants of Christ? I'm more. How is Paul a better servant of Christ? We're now expecting him just to give his list of uh, accomplishments, uh, hundreds if not thousands of conversion stories, uh, many proclamations of the gospel to those who are in power, the Caesars and the kings of the land. I'm expecting him to list off dozens of churches that he was instrumental in planting, uh, list off the successes of his missionary journeys and his planned trip to, to Spain to reach the unreached people groups. But instead he lists off his greatest signs of his weaknesses. And he says, Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. And apart from all of that, right, apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So strong is the Christian soldier, he's thrown in jail often. So strong is the Christian soldier, he is beaten near death countless times. So strong is the Christian soldier, he is, he's whipped and beaten with rods. So strong is the Christian soldier, he's pummeled almost to death by rocks. So strong is the Christian soldier, he is shipwrecked multiple times and adrift at sea for over a day. So strong, he's in dangers from the environment, from criminals, from his own people, from foreigners, from the cities, and from the boonies, the country, the wilderness, and from hunger, and from weather. So strong is the Christian soldier that he is racked with anxiety for the churches he serves. Uh, Paul Barnett, again, points out the, the, the military language here. Roman soldiers would often appeal to a, lift, a list of statistics to outline their great exploits and honors as soldiers. Augustus Caesar... Caesar of the land declares in his, his book, Reis Gestai, uh, he says this, Twice I received triumphal ovations. Three times I received cruel triumphs. Twenty times and one did I receive the appellation of imperator. All those things are apparently good things, right? But you can kind of see how they list in these awesome things off. And then Paul's statistics lack a certain luster when put beside Augustus Caesar of the land. Paul ends his appeal to statistics of weakness, his Christian military exploits, with another summary of his weakness. In the first part of verse 21, he states, We were too weak for that. And now, here in verse 29, he says, After all those statistics, right? Who is weak and I am not weak? Do you want to compete with me in my weakness, right? And this last one, right? This last question Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. The word falling here is stumbling block. Who, who stumbles and I'm not angry at it? And the idea is, 
one who stumbles off the path of life, one who stumbles into sin, right? He's carrying with that significance. And so Jesus Christ and him crucified is the stumbling block of unbelievers. But here, Paul is saying toleration of false teaching is the stumbling block of believers. Paul expresses emotion and anger over the stumbling that those questions, right? Upon themselves by listening to the super apostles. So we can ask ourselves questions, right? Um, in light of this. You know, what, what does our Christian soldiering look like? Is it a daily crucifixion? Or, like so many times, does it not resemble a nice, comfortable vacation? Do we have our strengths? Or do we rather see that God operates through our weaknesses? Does the teachers we collect around ourselves teach us to crucify ourselves and do the hard work of discipleship with real people? Or does it lead us to redefine Jesus, the Spirit, and the Gospel? Does it lead us to redefine sin, to change sin into something that is not sin according to the Bible, and to change sin according to the Bible into something that is no longer considered sin? We redefine sin because the Jesus we serve would be another Jesus. So it's a, it takes a, another sin. And the Corinthians here are clinging to another Jesus. They're threatening to leave Paul's Christ that he's put in front of them. And they're clinging to another Jesus, redefining sin to ease their consciences. And the different gospel that, he is being, that are being proclaimed to them deals with this newly defined sin. The Savior doesn't need to die on the cross. He doesn't need to appear weak. In fact, he needs to be strong. He doesn't need to die on the cross to save us from our sins, but rather he goes to the cross so that we who are also suffering under sin can see him as just a great example to follow, but nothing more. There's no repentance demanded by this gospel of the super apostles. In fact, if there's something wrong with me, it's normally someone else's fault. We chant the ancient cry of Adam when God comes to him after the first sin. This woman you gave me. Instead of, Lord, I have sinned against you. Have mercy on my soul. We don't naturally drift towards holiness. The Bible is chock full of that. And we don't naturally collect teachers whose teaching would lead us in the way of holiness. And we don't naturally gravitate toward a Savior who was crucified. Our third thing, and this is Paul's like, this is the tour de force. This is his best accomplishment in this list of weaknesses. Victory. Paul's medal of honor. His medal of honor. He's going to give the equivalent accomplishment that is worthy of the greatest honor in the Roman Empire. He says this in verses 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. So he's summarizing his theme. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. Uh, he's repeating his boast, things that show his weakness. And now he's conjuring up again the language back in verses 10 through 11 where he invokes kind of an oath. He's using oath-like language and he says, God and the Father of our Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, he now appeals to that God's knowledge. He's saying, Am I lying? No, God knows that I'm not lying. Now, again, you've got you to see the sarcasm. The statistics of weakness he just kind of espoused 
was true. And God knows that he's not lying. You would expect if you give this just long list of awesome accomplishments that someone's like, you're probably lying about that, right? But Paul's boasting of the very opposite thing. Like, you're probably not lying about that because basically it just shows that you're super weak, you're super ashamed, and a lot of people don't like you. A lot of people don't like you. And so there's that twang of sarcasm. If he had listed off this awesome list of achievements, you would expect someone to be like, eh, prove it. But instead he lists off this monstrous list, exposing his daily weaknesses and his many encounters with death. And he appeals to the knowledge of God and says, God knows that I am not lying. And so here's the chief accomplishment, verse 32 through 33. I don't know, when I read this the first time, and I don't know if you've had a similar effect, this just seems to kind of stick out. Like, what? What are you talking about? You just listed all these, like, weaknesses, and now you're talking about, like, being lowered in a basket outside of a city. What are you doing here? Uh, So he says this, At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the cell and escaped his hands. Thus ends chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, right? So what is he talking about? Um, Commentator David Garland tells us about a military reward uh, for Roman soldiers. Um, It was called the Wall Crown. This was presented to the first soldier to go up and over the wall of an enemy city in breaching it, right? This crown was made of gold, and it was fashioned to literally look like a turreted wall of a fortified city, and then they would pin it on themselves. And people who got this, this was, like, this was big. You're taking over a city, and you're the first soldier over the wall. Like, you breached the wall, right? You're Odysseus in that sense, all right? And so this wall crown was presented to the soldier who goes over the wall, and this crown's made of gold. And Paul here now, he's showing his wall crown-worthy accomplishment. Was he going up and over the wall? No. Was he courageously facing all the enemies he had in the city? No. He was let down in a basket that was likely used to haul up dead fish and lower dead fish to people outside the city as they're trading. He's lowered down through a basket in a window in the wall to escape like a coward from the hands of the governor under King Aretas. He's not climbing the wall as the first soldier in victorious conquest but rather he is being lowered down the wall in a basket as a criminal trying to flee Damascus. So here it is, right? That's his Medal of Honor-worthy accomplishment that he wants to put in front of these Corinthians to demonstrate that he's not a strong man. He's the opposite. He's a weak man. Now, 2 Corinthians 12.9 turns it all on its head. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul's estimation of himself was the very opposite of the soldier who receives the wall crown. Paul was always buffeted by weakness, left and right and at every corner. Yet this was God's design. His grace was sufficient in the midst of Paul's weakness. And his power was revealed through his weakness. He converted the Corinthians and gathered them into a church through Paul's weakness. He wrote 13 letters making up the bulk of the New Testament through Paul's weakness. He took a Christian movement predominantly among the Jews and spread it like wildfire throughout the entirety of the Roman Empire through the weakness of Paul. 
You see, Paul was actually traveling to Damascus as Saul. And he was going there right after approving of the death of Stephen. Right after Stephen's weakness was exposed for all to see. He was going there to throw Christians into prison. He had already tasted of this great weakness of Stephen and this great weakness that Christianity calls is the way of life. And it says this in Acts 9. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, Damascus, and you will be told what you are to do. Paul saw for the first time, even as he lost his eyesight, for God who said, "Light, let light shine out of the darkness, had shone into Paul's heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In one flick of light, this strong and mighty Saul becomes the weak and nimble submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul. He went from scoffing at the weakness of Stephen to becoming one of the weakest soldiers Christ has ever produced. Later in the same chapter in Acts, uh, Jesus is speaking to Ananias concerning the newly converted Paul. He says, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. The grace of God is, is sufficient, and his power is made perfect in the weakness of Paul. So here's our question. Will we choose to cling to Christ and him crucified and suffer? And stop our ears from tolerating the sweet, deceptive teaching of false teachers? Or will we tolerate the snake in the garden and turn to another Jesus who's more palatable? Is Christ... I originally have this written, but I just want to run back through the weaknesses here. All right. Now think about this. Paul is following Christ. How valuable is Christ to him? Think about his weaknesses. He's doing it all for the sake of Christ. Now, how sufficient must Jesus appear in the sight of Paul to suffer what he suffered? Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less than one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Jesus is there with him. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure of me and my anxiety for all the churches. How magnificent must have Christ been for a person to submit himself to that kind of weakness and abuse. And so let's end with this. This is the father's declaration about his son. At the transfiguration, when Jesus reveals his glory, the father declares, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The Son satisfies the God of the universe 
And he can and will satisfy us, even in the midst of weakness. So let's cling to him. So let's embrace the crucified king and keep watch over our faith. Let's pray. Father, um, the text is heavy, maybe a little morbid. But you are a God who is sufficient. Your grace is sufficient. Your power is made known through our weakness. Like Paul, Lord, I just ask that you would give us literal or not literal, doesn't matter. Show us your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Allow our souls to be filled with such satisfaction with this Jesus. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let us cling to the crucified king and let us follow him. Grow our faith. Protect us from false teaching. Protect us from tolerating sin in our own lives. Let Jesus be so worthy in our eyes that we would follow him through the greatest abuses this world can possibly throw. We pray these things in Jesus' name.